Episode 14 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com forward slash Doc Fermento. There's over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So folks, go get yourself a free audiobook. That's how I read. Welcome to another edition of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today, we have the grand self-experimenter himself, Seth Roberts. Hi, Seth. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining me to discuss uh, all your your curiosities. <laughs> You've really got some you know, amazing and interesting work going on over there. Oh, thank you. You know, for me, um, like the title of my show, I'm searching out geeks, gurus, and experimenters. You know, and you're a little bit of all that, and the the experimentation angle is is huge. You want to explain what self self experiments and their value? Well, I call what I do personal science, which is using science to um, help yourself. So science is, you know, collection, you know, involves collecting data and doing experiments, and and but it also involves um, reading about science. You know, you you try to learn what other people have done. But the whole point is that I I have been able to help myself by uh, collecting data and um, reading the scientific literature. I mean, obviously the the collecting data part is surprises more people than the the reading the scientific literature part. But <laughs> but I like to encourage both. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like you're pretty uh, pretty heavy into um, cataloging everything that you do. Basically, is that a good way to put it? No, no, that's not true at all. No? I I I um I don't measure a lot of stuff. Um, I'm I measure uh, things where I want to improve. I meant maybe I, more note taking as to what changes you're making. Well, I'm I'm I yeah I keep track. I mean, if I have an idea. Um, then I start keeping track. But mm-hmm. it, it, it generally starts with keeping track, the measuring something like measuring my acne or measuring my sleep. Mm-hmm. And then um, maybe I'll have an idea for an experiment and I'll do that. And if I'm doing an experiment, I'll keep track of whatever it is I'm changing. Like if I'm changing how much butter I, I eat, then I would, keep, I would start to keep track of that. But I wouldn't okay. keep track of butter in the absence of a good idea, in the absence of an idea mm-hmm. about butter. Sure. That makes sense. So, can we talk a little bit about um, your background and, this, you know, in the scientific background or schooling or your degrees? Yeah, I was, um, my, my self-experimentation began when I was a graduate student in psychology, and I studied experimental psychology at Brown University, and then I became a professor at Berkeley, and again, in experimental psychology. So, that's my professional life, and I'm, I... Um, more recently, I become a professor at Tsinghua University, which is in Beijing. But um, so that's that's my uh, career. Okay. And how did how did the Chinese connection come about? Oh, I retired from Berkeley when I wrote the, after I wrote the Shangri-La Diet because um, uh, 
it seemed to me there was a future in writing more books, but it was kind of lonely sitting at home writing books. So I have a, I have a half-time appointment at Tsinghua. Huh. I, I got the job because I, no, I got the job because of a colleague of mine is, is, is um, helping to rebuild the Tsinghua department, oh. a Berkeley colleague of mine. Huh. Very interesting. So you're I studied half the year? I studied Chinese every day, <laughs> but I don't speak it very well at all. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm there about I'm about half the school year. That's right. Oh wow! And then right, are, and then you're back in Berkeley then. Yeah, I'm back in Berkeley a, a, a good fraction of the year. And what are you doing there now? Right now, oh, uh, doing my taxes and writing a paper, stuff like that. Okay. <laughs> So let's go back to um, one of your first experiments. Then you you started with what was it? Acne. Yeah. The well, the first experiment I did that was interesting was involved acne, and I um, I was a grad student in psychology, and I was trying to learn how to do experiments. So I thought that a good way to learn ex- how to do experiments was to do as many as possible. So I just tried to experiment on whatever you know whatever I could, and um, I had acne. And I could measure that by counting the number of pimples I had every morning. And um, my dermatologist had given me some medicine for acne, but I still had acne. So I, I even though I was taking the medicine, so I, I thought that um, if I increased how much of the medicine I took, my acne would get better because I thought the medicine was good. Mm-hmm. But that but that didn't happen. I increased the amount of medicine I took, and my acne did not get better. Well, medicines. Well, the medicine I was testing then was an antibiotic called tetracycline. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took more tetracycline, but my acne did not change. And um, then I began to worry, and I lowered the dose, and it didn't change. It didn't get worse. And then I lowered the dose to zero, and it still didn't get worse. And so um, zero is a low dose. <laughs> yeah, zero is zero is a rather low dose. And um, I had I really thought the medicine was working, but it wasn't. I discovered, and um, by my 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 experimentation. So I, I wasn't. I didn't go into that thinking I was going to help my, help myself, but that's what happened. So I was impressed because my doctor had never my doctor had never mentioned to me the possibility that tetracycline did not work. Uh-huh. So you know, in a, in a month or in two months, I figured out something that my doctor didn't know. So that's uh-huh. I mean, and it was helpful too. I mean, both both sides of it were impressed me. So that was yeah. I was quite, I was really surprised by that. I lost and a girlfriend because of tetracycline. So what happened? One of the first girls I ever like almost kind of fell in love with, and she had acne, and um, she was taking some water and drinking some water, and she was taking a pill, and I said, "What are you What are you taking?" She said, "Oh, tetracycline." I said, "What's it for?" She said, "My acne," and I said, "It's not working," and we never. Oh talked no! Again. Oh no! I meant yeah. it. Like, oh, it's not working. I didn't mean it to be rude, <laughs> but I think it was like to your point. Look, this isn't working. This this pill, and you had to find that out for yourself. Well, yeah. See, I, I, I in the beginning, I thought that if I didn't take the tetracycline, my acne would get worse. Mm-hmm. But that, that didn't turn out to be true. And you couldn't make it. Um, you couldn't take more and reduce your acne either. So, what was the um, other medicine that you would be that they would prescribe then? Uh, benzoyl peroxide. Okay. 
And which is just like a topical wash type of. It's like a cream. You rub it on your skin. Yeah. I remember going through this in my teens. It's been a long time. That turned out to work. Oh, okay. So, so there, you know, but, um, so one of the medicines, I didn't think the, te- I didn't think the benzoyl peroxide worked. I went into my measurements thinking that the tetracycline worked and the benzoyl peroxide did not work, but the truth was the opposite. And, um, again, I was impressed that, you know, mm-hmm. some data could make me change my mind. Yeah. Cool. Who knew, you know? Right. What did you take on next? Um, I tried to improve my sleep, and I that was one thing. It took a long, very long time. I would wake up too early in the morning. Um, I'd wake up tired, and um, it took me about 10 years before I figured out something that really made a difference. Um, I just, The first thing I discovered about that was um, that breakfast was making me wake up too early in the morning. I found that if I did not, if I stopped eating breakfast, okay. um, I had less of a problem. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I was thinking about that wrong. You didn't wake up and eat breakfast. You mean the eating the breakfast would cause you to wake up the next day early. The following yeah, day. Yeah. Not just not just one day. It was I a long lasting effect. Like it, you woke up so that you could eat. You meant it. Some kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, but. So you, <clears throat> what did you do? You you reduced your breakfasts then. I stopped eating breakfast, and okay. and I had less, and I had less of a problem waking up too early. Huh? It, there was nothing obvious about it. I mean, I didn't wake up hungry. Okay. Yeah. I woke say, up. I, I woke up. I woke idea. up at four a.m. and 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 um, I just lay there like many people do. Sure. But I but I, I didn't know why. But finally, I, I figured out that breakfast was part of the problem. Is it ten years you did this? It took ten years to figure that out. That's right. Whoa! How many things had you experimented with? Like, have you, did you try drugs? Oh uh, no, I didn't or? try drugs. I, I tried. I've tried maybe ten things. Mm-hmm. I kept varying things, hoping mm-hmm. that was something would work. Okay. The but first thing I tried was eat. exercise. That's what everybody says. Oh, if you get more exercise, yeah, just wear yourself out. Isn't that the idea? Just that didn't work. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like dieting then. Same thing. You can't exercise yourself fit pretty much. If your diet's uh, not easily, no. Yeah. Um Anyway, so it it was by it was by accident. I, I changed something else for some other reason and that turned out to affect my sleep and and that was that was what got me that was what led me to um Figure out that breakfast mattered. It was a, it was an accident of of, of doing something else. Mm-hmm. And when you uncover something like that, um, how would you think removing breakfast would be a very individual thing, or have you done more research and has, does it show that it's better for a larger number of people, the majority of people? Have you thought or looked into that at all? Um. What I what I found with myself was that breakfast caused me to wake up too early, mm-hmm. and what I found in particular was that I'd been eating breakfast around seven a.m. and I was waking up about four a.m. No, I wasn't waking up hungry, but I was waking up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
This is actually a phenomenon that's found in lots of animals, um, including birds. So um, it's that it's if you feed an animal at a certain time, the animal will tend to become active about three hours earlier. Um, so pet owners sometimes pretty much know this. So that if you feed your dog at noon every day, your dog will start to become active around 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have no doubt that what I found for myself is true for everybody because it's true for lots of different animals, not just humans. Um, so that's that's how I know it's it's a general thing. Hmm. Interesting. I never knew that about the animals. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very obvious with rats. If you if you, when you feed a rat at a certain time, rats in laboratory um, in laboratories are fed at the same time every day. Like maybe they're fed at noon. Mm-hmm. Well. Around 9 a.m., the rats will start to make a little bit of noise, and the noise will increase and increase and increase until at noon they're making a lot of noise. Yeah. So it's, it's, this is very well known to people who um, deal with laboratory animals anyway. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, you know, recently you've been um, writing or you're submitting, or I'm not sure how, it, how this works, but you have your posts are being on our uh, featured on boingboing.net yeah a few uh their um posts i their stuff i write especially for boing boing yeah oh you're writing those especially for them they're very yeah. curious and great reads you know um this f- first one i saw was on crohn's and you may have written before them but that was the first one i noticed and i thought it was a fascinating read because it's about self-experimenting with your crohn's right and trying to, or watching some other people who have, and seeing what worked for them. Yeah, I, I'm I've re- I'm writing a series of pieces for Boing Boy, and the the overall theme is people who've helped themselves be healthy. Mm-hmm. It's it's how to help yourself be healthy, yeah. as opposed to relying on someone else like a doctor to do it for you. Well, you're taking I, quite a shellacking on there, you know. <laughs> They're beating the hell out of you on the comments section, and yeah, well. they've even brought in professional MD skeptics on, on the case. Yeah. Well, uh, let them, let them rant. (laughs) I mean, I've tried to comment before they had run a feature on, um, whether probiotics, well, probiotics have never, they have no clinical proof that you can affect your gut flora. And I just wrote some anecdotes. I tried to join the con- you know, the conversation on Boing Boing about it. And I said, well, I've helped myself and dozens of other people um, reverse their gut um, irritability with the use of probiotics only. No, I'm not a doctor, so I can't prescribe drugs. And they basically just told me to keep my anecdotal crap off their comments board, you know. On Boing Boing? Yeah. Not, not, not the editors. The other commenters basically were like... We don't anecdotes are worthless. Why are you even mentioning that on on our comment section? Well, they, they must not be scientists because professional scientists are less uh, dismissive of individual ex- examples. Well, these were students, and they were all science students. They were all oh, talking about their labs and their studies and what they found, as if their little microcosm, their little window, at is any peak at what is out there. You know. And yeah, the power well, uh, of the anecdote, <laughs> especially when it's been repeated a billion times. There's lots of examples in the history of science where individual examples turn out to be very important. 
Right. Let's talk about a few of those. <laughs> okay. Um, I just went in my head that yeah, I just read that um, you were just writing about in the paper of yours that I read, and I, I, it's just escaping my mind at the moment. But can you give us an example? Well, um, electricity was it was came under our control because of a, a, something that happened while somebody was dissecting a frog. You know, the static electricity made the frog's leg move. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be very important. Yeah, yeah. It started with a single observation. Yeah. So this is the observational. I think maybe people think we're so advanced that observational things and you know, anecdotal evidence, just we're, we're, we're well past that now. I think they feel like we've seen it all and we know so much. You know, it's kind of like the, it reminds me of the Robert Anton Wilson quote about skeptics are skeptical of everything except things like the AMA or conventional wisdom or their own belief system, right? Well, I, I... often seem to, to stop at the known... I I I think I think that people. One reason that people like being in a religion is that it makes them feel superior to other people, and I I think that people who are scientists they 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 can't adopt a religion because they're scientists. You know, those two are separate, but they still adopt some of the atti- some religious attitudes of, of superiority, and I I think that's what's going on. It isn't just anecdotes that they look down on. They also look down on correlations and mm-hmm. they look down they look down on twenty other things, you know, and. Um, I, I, but without any reason, there's no evidence behind it, all this dismissiveness. Right. Well, if you were to read the comments section, they'd have you believe otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would. I would love to put them under. I would love to take. I would love to cross-examine one of these people. <laughs> well, find out things, what. I mean, to find out what exactly their beliefs are based on. <laughs> their approach is basically saying that you. You are bad science. You have you are like junk science, basically. That's what I'm reading. I see. Okay. Have you spent any time on there? I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but oh no, I, I've I've tr- I've done my best to answer the comments when I can. Yeah. It's just like as if you don't even believe in the scientific method or anything. The way they, well, anyways. Well, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm opening. I'm glad I'm uh, saying something that some people disagree with. Let's put it that way. That's good. Yeah, I mean, it's opening up floodgates on there. There's there's plenty of comments. <laughs> it, it would be it would be worse if I said things that everyone agreed with. If everyone agreed with you, yeah, then what would your what would the point be? So, what did we discover in this Crohn's piece? Um, I thought the main point was that someone, an individual, can help themselves with Crohn's. Um, even, and 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 in doing so, well, that's that's point number one. You can help yourself. You can study the question, or or your mother or your grandmother can study the question, and they can come up with something helpful. That's number. That's point number one. And mm-hmm. point number two is, doctors might not agree with you. Doctors might say it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Those, those are those are important points. I th- I think that science has advanced to the point. Or our under, you know, whatever, or our understanding of nature, or understanding of our bodies, or understanding of health, or our understanding of the world, whatever you want to call it, has advanced to the point where people can help themselves. 
they don't they it's it's a strange thing in, in the past you know everything's become more specialized you know you can't build a car you can't build a laptop um you know you can't do a, a, a dozen things that we need specialists for maybe you can't even repair your sink but you can help your you can improve your health it's, it's just a funny thing and it but it's true it is that, a funny uh, thing because that's the one thing we're taught we we can't fix. Um, you know well, I mean? certainly, it, 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 certainly, doctors would like us to think that. I'm not. Uh, I agree, and we're not taught that we can fix it. I. That's sort of what I'm trying to do on Boeing. I'm trying to teach people that they can improve their own health, and I'm trying to show them a bunch of examples and of ways of mm-hmm. doing that. Yeah, I love it. I know, I suffered some pretty severe um, gut issues my whole life. And it got really bad in my mid early thirties, mid thirties. And I was seeing a regular doctor and I was on all the regular prescriptions, the PPIs and the over the counters and, and all those things. And I discovered fermented foods and reversed it all. And then I had a conversation with a friend of mine. I just asked him, I said, How come how come a doctor never said, Hey, go home and try to make some raw sauerkraut? Or make, drink raw milk, or make some cultured yogurt. And he basically said, they, a doctor can't tell people things like that. Really? Why? That's what I said. It's not illegal. He said, it, I, I wasn't sure what is, I'd have to have him on here to defend his, his message. But basically, he just told me that that's not the way it works. That they're not going to tell people to do things like that. You know, but I would have been on the PPI to this day had I not experimented on my own. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. They, that's not the way things work. But why is that? Did he have an answer to that? No, but I'm sure he would because he's got an answer for everything. So yeah. I'm going to have to get him back on. <laughs> I'm not, I, I think it's accurate description of, of, why, of the way things are. But why oh, things why? are that way is a, is a harder yeah. question. You know, and it's not his job to answer that for the entire medical community. It was just a conversation that I was in with him. You know, at the yeah, time. yeah. I, I, I wonder, I wonder what, what someone inside the medical. I think, I think people inside and outside the medical community can agree that that's how things are. The doctors rarely say things like that, and and I, I, I wonder why. Is it medical school training, or is it um, peer pressure, or is it what they read in their, you know, yeah. their daily reading, or what? I don't know. It's like if you were reading a. Boing Boing article, you know, they have their science editor on there now, uh, Maggie, I think her name is, and, you know, she basically refers to any of this stuff as woo-woo, or what they call woo, It's just made up science, and that can be anything from, um, you know, home brews to snake oil to um, myth, you know, ancient cultural techniques and foods, this is all classified under the category of woo for some reason. Only medical science gets the the thumbs up, which includes pharma. And if there's any woo out there, doesn't it lie in pharmacological drugs? I mean, well, look at it this way: you're making progress if people have to come up with a derogatory name for what you're doing. <laughs> you're making more progress than if they ignore you. Yeah, right. That's true. I guess sometimes they use the term woo to protect. To, as a warning against, you know, really crafty Shylocks, people who are there to really pull one over on you or something. But these traditional medicines and these traditional techniques, 
they've been around a while, and there's a reason. You know, wouldn't the folklore have died about sauerkraut if it didn't work? Well, I wouldn't say that. I I would in China, um, people think that walnuts make you smart, mm-hmm. and as far as I can tell, one reason they think of that is that walnuts look like brains. brains. But yeah. but in my in my in my laboratory, we tested this idea, and walnuts okay. do not make people smart. They make okay. people they they make people a little bit stupid. Mm-hmm. So so I think the traditional knowledge was wrong. Okay, yeah, you know I kind of overstepped myself there. There's tons of. Um old wives' tales and things that are around, but some of them aren't as ancient as we think. A lot of them are just products of uh, family tradition or more short-term. But things that have lasted, I mean the process of making sauerkraut, you know, of the process of fermenting foods, not the folklore around it, but the actual craft, there is a reason that exists. Because that's been done, you know, throughout the millennia. I think I think fermented foods are very. I'm I'm just as interested in fermented foods as you are, and I think um, even though I don't have digestive problems, and um, I think they're a really special case. I think um, I think fermented foods have uh, lasted um, because they taste good, and um, they 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 really taste good in in ways that other foods do not. Like for example. Um, if I make soup and I put miso in it, the soup is instantly becomes better. And um, you can't get that effect with spices. You can't just put in one spice and make a soup taste a lot better. But you really can with miso. It it's like it's like it one you know one 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 dose of miso is is worth twelve different spices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and basically that's true with with lots of fermented foods. They have a complexity and um. You know, a pleasure boosting aspect that just you can't find anywhere else in the f- whole food world. Right. And um, my explanation for this is that um, there's a reason we like. There's three. There's three tastes that a little hard to explain. <coughs> one is, um, Brian, are you there, Brian? Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, um, why do we like sour foods? Mm-hmm. Okay, no, that's one question. No, another question is, why do we like foods with umami? Mm-hmm. That's another question. A third question is, why do we like foods with complex flavors? That's a third question. So there's, there are three questions about our food preferences. And I think all of those questions have the same answer, which is that our preferences for those things push us to eat foods that have more microbes in them. Mm-hmm. So for sour is the most obvious one, which is that the bacteria turn sugars into, into acids. So... We like a, we like a sour milk more than we might like regular milk. So that pushes us to eat yogurt or or sour milk, and um, the, the sour milk has more microbes than the unsour milk. Um, the same thing with umami. Umami is a is produced by protein breakdown. So as meat gets older and has more microbes in it, uh, it it tastes better because mm-hmm. it has more umami. And um, so this is this. This preference of ours for umami-flavored foods pushes us to uh, eat food that has more microbes. And, and likewise with complexity, um, bacteria produce all sorts of breakdown products, and, and they produce a complex flavors that you can't really get easily in, in any other way. Mm-hmm. And so um, this, this, de- this desire for complexity, again, pushes us to fermented foods and foods that are, um, ha- are older th- than, than, than fresh foods. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's – you know, 
lots of people fetishize fresh foods, but I think the truth of the matter is the opposite, that it's the unfresh foods that are actually better for us. Huh. Anyway, I, I, I came to fermented, I came to, I have a strong belief about fermented foods just like you do, and, and I came to them through the, the ideas I just told you about, but I found lots of supporting evidence for these ideas, for the idea that we need fermented foods to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get them, we'll be unhealthy and um, we'll be less healthy than we could be. Anyway, so, so fermented foods have, I think, have, have, have persisted down through the ages, not because they made people healthy, but because people like the flavor. Okay. And, right. and we, we evolved to like the flavor because mm-hmm. people who like the flavor of fermented foods turned out to be healthier than people who didn't. Mm-hmm. But I think that was a long time ago. I, I think we'll, you'll find we'll probably find that animals like fermented foods too, like rats or horses sure. or stuff. Yeah, and another benefit, is if you could go a little further down the road, then is uh, the fermentation process removes a lot of um, food toxins. So that would add another level of as you're seeking out these um, pleasure flavors, you're actually eating foods that are less toxic for you. Not only the microbiological advantage with the probiotic bacterias, but these foods have uh, lower levels of known food toxins like lectins or um, phytates or phytic acid. Yeah, that's a good point. When, as a grain is fermented, the phytic acid is removed or lessened. And same thing for beans, and that's why beans are soaked or cooked you know, for a day. Or, and all these processes of fermentation lowers the toxicity of food. So it's to our advantage to have a keen sense of, of smell and taste but i fear most of culture has lost their desire for these foods flavors people are so well look at our look at our food world right now it's social i mean it's scientifically engineered with salt and fat and things and to to come out of a restaurant you know a, a chain restaurant yeah, I think I think fermented foods are not easily commercialized, so they've lo- they've lost out. Mm-hmm. I guess scientists are doing their part, but I don't think they're going to help us. Um, trying to make better I, flavors. <laughs> well, I, I think the, I think the benefits of fermented foods. I think people are becoming more aware of them. I think there's been a um, an increase in interest over the last ten years, and um, for example, there's a lot more kombucha being sold now than there used to be. Um, Absolutely, and it's a big trend on the Twitter and any you know in the whole blogosphere. There's a whole there's a whole gang of us out there. <laughs> so I think they're I think I think uh, they're making a big comeback. Cool. Did have you had any personal experience with restless leg syndrome, or is that something you just happened upon? I have no personal experience with. It. I just happened upon it because um, somebody who reads my blog discovered something really interesting about it. Oh, okay. And what was that? Uh, his mother had restless leg syndrome and he discovered by, um, that niacin really helped her when she took a large dose of niacin, you know, a super dose, a mega dose, mm-hmm. um, her restless leg syndrome, which she'd had for like 30 years disappeared within a day or two. Oh, wow. Interesting. And it was, it, it was getting worse and worse. It had been getting worse and worse all those years. And, Originally, she had controlled it with a drug, but then, you know, as she got older, even the drug wasn't working anymore. So, but the the megadose of niacin worked within a day or two. Wow, has there any been any f- follow up on that with other people, or you have more info on that one? There's no, 
the reason he tried it was that he read on a certain website a web website that someone had someone had taken a megadose of niacin for maybe for some other reason, mm-hmm. and her and um, her restless leg syndrome had gone away, or maybe it was her husband's restless leg syndrome, mm-hmm. but th- there had been an original report which gave him the idea. Hmm. So his observation was a kind of confirmation. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't this kind of the similar way it works in a, in um, well in the at the clinical level at the clinic level at the at the doctor's office if they notice their patient is on a certain drug and then they get this benefit from it, right? That's the observation. They say you're on this boner pill and your blood pressure goes down, then it it, it kind of I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but what what is that called? Observation or sometimes it's called serendipity. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was it was. Um, but I mean, isn't called... this a big thing? Like, what when you know, a lot of people want to gather that information together, and and then then the pharmaceutical company could rebrand the medicine for this other benefit. Oh yeah, that's something. That's definitely happens. Yeah, like um, with the Viagra, right? Because they find a new, a new use for it. It's actually a side effect, but it was never a side effect. Actually, they're all effects. There's no side effects. <laughs> well, with niacin, luckily it's very cheap. So yeah, restless leg sufferers are, are in luck. Huh. And do you think that's a relatively safe therapy, niacin in ex- extreme doses? Um, well, it, if you take a large amount, it can cause flushing. But um, other than that, yeah, it seems to be safe. Lots of people have taken mega doses of niacin. It's very common. I know I did. I, just as a another anecdote, I, I took a lot of it just to see what would happen because I heard about the flushing, and um, I thought I wanted to see as an experiment if it would help with um, some just negative, de- de- like depression type thoughts, or if I would improve my my mood. Um, all I know is that it, it, you did, it will definitely cause some flushing. Yeah. I felt like I had a really, really bad sunburn. Yeah. I've tried it too. I had, I, I got flushing as well. Yeah. I didn't get any, I didn't notice any happy happiness come out of it. Um, but that's cause I'm just a negative jerk. I didn't notice any benefits either, so I stopped. Yeah, me too. I have, still have half the bottle there, and I haven't taken them since. Have you ever done any um, other um, like nootropics experiments? That would be like 5-HTP or you know these cognitive enhancers or anything like that? No, I haven't. Um, uh, I, basically, I, I generally experiment on things that I, I can do forever. So, you know... And I also try to experiment on things that our our ancestors might have ingested. Um, I'm not exactly, but you know, I come pretty close to that. So um, I'm not likely to study any of those things anytime soon. Okay. More along the forager hunter gatherer line of experimenting, then. Yeah, yeah. Try to figure out, you know, among the things that our hunter-gatherer ancestors might have ingested, which of them do we really need, and which of them, and 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 what in what amounts, mm-hmm. and not just and not just foods, but other things that they were exposed to, 
other 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 aspects of their lives. Like what? Well, the, the idea with breakfast was I mean, I got the idea from from breakfast, my breakfast experiment. I you know, I first I discovered that breakfast was bad and then I reasoned, well, our hunter-gatherer ancestors probably didn't eat breakfast, so it makes some sense that it was bad. And um so a, another thing I just I studied after I got that insight, which was that maybe our hunter-gatherer environment was, you know, maybe certain aspects of our hunter-gatherer environment were especially good for us, that we really need them and we're not getting them now. Um, that's, one, that's one thing that led me to study looking at faces on TV in the morning. And I found that uh, looking at faces um, on TV in the morning uh, made improve my mood. Um, it improved my mood. Looking at the TV, as yes. that was on there. I mean, you didn't have like a VCR tape of people's faces or something. No, I did have a VCR tape of people's faces. Oh, uh, I, it was a specific uh, thing of faces. Yeah, it's faces. That's right. And um, so I, I looked at faces, and on Monday, <clears throat> my mood was better on Tuesday. Wow. So it's not obvious at all because there's a very long delay. There's a there's a, a 24 hour delay, but uh, between you know when you see the when I saw the faces and when I felt better, but um, the the whole idea of doing that was that um, faces on TV can substitute for human contact, and that people in the Stone Age, when they got up in the morning, they chatted with their neighbors. So I was by by looking at faces on TV, I was trying to recreate a small aspect of of hunter gatherer life. Like a little fake community. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there, there was some data which, which suggested that it, it might be a good idea to do what I did. But, um, but part of the reason I did what I did was that I, I had a belief about the way, Hunter, the way our ancestors lived. Huh. How long have you been thinking about these hunter-gatherers and these ancestors? Is this new to you, or is this part of your... No, since 1990, which is when I made that breakfast discovery. That's what got me thinking that... I mean, this, there's nothing new about thinking that our ancestors lived healthy lives. That's like, you know, thousand years old. But the idea that it can be practical is, is what had not occurred to me. But when I made the discovery of breakfast, it, I began to think, maybe this hunter-gatherer thing has some practical uses. Five hundred years ago, people were complaining that modern life was bad for us, but it, it, was, it was kind of a it was kind of a sermonizing thing. Oh, modern life is so bad! How dare you? Don't do that. Go live in the country. Oh, okay. Nobody was going to go live in the country, but I, you know, it, it didn't really go anywhere for a long time. But um, it started catching on in the um, in the nineteen hundreds when it became clear that. Um, Rich people had all sorts of diseases that poor people did not. <laughs> and um, so then it became, you know, a little more, little more concrete. And, and in my work, it's, it's even more concrete. It's a way of generating ideas that can be tested. Oh, you know, I've often talked about this, that with affluence comes um, ill health throughout history. No one, I never find anyone who agrees with me. What? There's lots of examples. Well, I just don't know the examples. I just have a few things I've come across, and I don't, I don't make notes, and I have a bad memory. But I was thinking of, just from reading, say, a Michael Pollan book, where he talks about the process of you know, processing grains, and turning grain into white flour, and that became the thing that everyone wanted, and 
is detrimental to health. And same thing for, you know, processed sugars and processed foods. As, you know, <clears throat> wealthier people were able to afford these, it would cause ill health. And there was, like you said, there's many examples, but I don't know. I can never seem to get anyone on board with me there. Well, I don't know who you're talking to because it's kind of well understood that there's what they're called diseases of civilization mm-hmm. or diseases of affluence. And, you know, that, that the, the term disease of civilization is like 100 years old at least. Um, you may, you know, it's, it's well, it's, it's well understood. It's well known in the public health field. Mm-hmm. There are other diseases of poverty. There's some, there's lots sure. of diseases that poor people get more than rich people. It goes mm-hmm. both ways. Right. Especially the extreme poverty before there was, or even now that there is, and we're not using proper hygiene practices, removing toxic wastes from the environment, whether they be human waste or industrial waste, right? That's when the the poor get really hammered by those those things. Yeah, and also uh, famine. Famine is mm-hmm. a disease of poor people. Mm-hmm. And famine doesn't need to be a disease of the poor. It's a... There, there's... <clears throat> it doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't be that way. But that's a whole other topic. Um... There's plenty of food, that's for sure. I agree. So we'll cover this Shangri-La diet for a little bit. How did that come about? Um, It started um, around 1990 when I discovered that um, I weighed 200 pounds. And that was that was, that that broke some threshold for me. I could not bear to be two hundred pounds. I could bear to be one ninety nine, but two hundred was too much. <laughs> and um, so at that po- at that point, I uh, I applied an idea that I've been telling my students, which is that um, the more you, the more the better food tastes, the the more fattening it is. And um, so at that point, I tried eating food that um, was less processed because usually we process food to make it taste better. Anyway, so I ate. I had. I started. I ate oranges instead of orange juice, and I stopped eating deli food and so on. So I did a bunch of different things, and um, my weight went. I, I. I. It was a little. It was a little bit hard to make those changes, but um, it wasn't that hard. And I lost about twelve pounds, and I never. I have never regained it. I lost twelve pounds pretty easily. And um, so that was the beginning of the idea, which was that uh, maybe maybe there's something the experts don't know that I know. Maybe maybe weight loss is not so incredibly hard as everyone says. You know, maybe it's possible to find new ways to lose weight. Um, so it sort of went on from there, and I did other experiments, and I read other things, and um, I came up with a new theory of weight control in the middle of the um, in the middle of the '90s, and um, my theory of weight control explained um, why eating sushi would cause me to lose weight and why eating foods with a low glycemic index caused me to lose weight and why eating the oranges instead of the orange juice caused me to lose weight. And um, so I, I really believe my theory um, because it, it, it had helped me find new ways to lose weight that, that you could not read about anywhere. Um, and it's really, really hard to find new ways to lose weight. I mean, lot, you know, 
it's it's very hard to come up with a new idea on this subject, which has been you know studied to death. I was going to say it's been studied. <laughs> yeah, it's been and studied, been but a few books written about it. So yeah, there's been one or two books about so it. What did you uncover? <laughs> um, well, my theory. Um, was that our set point is controlled by the strength of flavor calorie associations. Um, so we, we learn to associate the, the flavors of our food, which is really the smells of our food. We learn to associate the smell of our food with um, the calories in the food. And some of these associations are strong and some of them are weak. And they, whether they're strong or weak depends on many things. But if they're strong, when you eat that food, your set point will go up. If when you when they're weak, your set point will, will go down. When you eat foods with a weak flavor calorie association, um, what if they're foods that you're not familiar or caloric? And when you yeah foods, you have to learn this association. So when you eat unfamiliar foods, mm-hmm. they don't they have a weak they have a they don't have any flavor calorie association. So um, those it's foods, so, yeah, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. So it's specific to you. If you don't have a familiarity with that smell being caloric is that- right those okay. foods will pu- those foods will push your set point down um, so your set po- if your set point's high you're going to be fat if your set point's low you're going to be thin mm-hmm. there's no getting around there's no get you can't get very far from your set point without enormous grief so okay. painless weight loss is all about understanding what controls your set point and Doing and controlling your set point by the foods you eat, um, and so that was the idea. Behind, that was the idea of the. That was the practical idea of, of my weight loss theory. That it it, it it's it said do x do do what I just said. Okay, fine. Well, even though I had this idea, it was not so obvious how to apply it. Um, but then eventually, I discovered that if I eat foods with no smell at all, that has a very powerful. Um, downward effect on my set point that pushes my set point down very very hard and fast and um, so I the Shangri-La diet is based on the discovery that if you eat foods that have calories but no smell your set point will go down and since it's not very hard to eat those foods um, this is a practical method of lowering your set point and keeping it down so that's the in a nutshell that's the Shangri-La diet now, the, in, in practice, um, the best way to do the Shangri-La diet is, is to hold your nose, hold your nose shut mm-hmm. while you eat stuff that's good for you. While you eat things that are good for you. Yeah. So in, in practice, that might be flaxseed oil. Flaxseed mm-hmm. oil is good for you. Um, I, I do that. I also, I also eat butter and, and meat, which is good for me. And I, I have my nose shut when I do it. So I do those two things. I do the flaxseed oil with my nose shut. And I do the butter and small amount of meat with my nose shut. <laughs> so I, I maybe I ingest maybe 500 or 600 calories a day with my nose shut without any smell. And it's not hard. I don't have any trouble doing it. And um, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure because of that, I weigh less than I would otherwise. Wow. Pretty convenient little trick. <laughs> Yeah, what it's, is the it's, mechanism. What is going on there? Well, you know, the set point. We have a mechanism that pushes our set point up or down to help us cope with feast and famine periods of of, of the of the year. 
And um, in order to get through the, the famine periods of the year, when there's no food, we need to have stored enough food during the, the feast periods of the year. So, so sometimes there's a lot of food, sometimes there's not very much food. Mm -hmm. And when there's a lot of food, it's a good idea to stock up to help you get through the periods when there is not very much food. So our set point is sensitive to the abundance or, um, or lack of abundance of food in our environment. And um, the way it works is that when there's a lot of food around, we tend to eat the foods that taste the best. So those push our set point up. And when there's periods of famine, um, we start eating foods that don't taste very good at all. And those are the foods that push our set point down. So the mechanism I'm talking about is just a way of, 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 of detecting whether there's lots of food available or not very much food available. Oh, so it's like you're playing an ancient trick on your body. Yeah, when I'm when I'm manipulating my set point by eating uh, foods with no smell, I'm tricking my body into thinking it's a time of famine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. Well, it's amazing it works, but it, it does work. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. So, as you're, you have a diet book and you're doing this. Um, trick with the set point what are you eating overall or what were you and have you changed has it evolved well uh, because of the Shangri-La diet discovery I eat a I eat a large amount of s f calories every day that have no smell okay mm -hmm. so that's a, you know maybe that's for the last um, 10 years um, but since then I've also changed my diet one way is that I eat a lot more um Flaxseed and flaxseed oil. So when I'm in um, when I'm in Berkeley, I, I eat flaxseed oil. But when I'm in Beijing, I eat, I eat ground flaxseed. But they both have the same effect. And the reason I eat them is that they supply a lot of omega three. Okay, for the I was wondering why why would you eat flaxseeds? Okay, for the omega three. For the omega three, and I you eat the seed. You, I'm sorry, you, I I missed you there. You eat the seeds, or only use the oil, or. In Berkeley, I can buy good flaxseed oil, so I, I often eat the oil. But okay. in um, in Beijing, I, I can't buy good flaxseed oil, so I, I buy flax seeds and I grind them up. Oh, okay. So that's one change. Another change is, um, as I, as we talked about, I eat a lot of fermented food every day. I eat, um, I eat miso, I eat yogurt, I eat kefir, I eat um, pickles. Um, I don't have any – I eat sauerkraut when I can get it. Um what else? I, I eat lots of kombucha. I make kombucha. Mm -hmm. um, um, I eat like natto. House, except for the flaxseed. I, <laughs> I eat natto. Uh, Whoa. What else? Nada. What else? Well, anyway, that's... Um, You've got a special palate if you like a natto. I eat a wide range of fermented foods. That's another change. A third change is I eat a lot of butter. I eat like... Um, 60 grams or two tablespoons of butter every day because I found that butter is um, good for my brain. Okay, let's stick on that for a minute here. When <clears throat> oh, 60 grams, like about how, how tall are you? 5'11". Oh, 5'11". And your weight is where? I don't know, 175. Okay, we're, I think we're the exact same size. Like, exactly. Yeah, so, okay, butter. I'm guessing we're talking pastured, grass-fed, unsalted butter. 
I don't care too much about the pastor Graspa. Um, oh, really? Okay. Um, I haven't found any difference between the the pastor and the unpastor, or the grass fed and the ungrass fed. Okay. I think you know grass fed is only supposed to be good because it, it supplies omega three, and I'm getting my omega three from flaxseed, so mm-hmm. it's not so obvious why gra- grass fed would be better. But well, there's um, also the point that it's not coming from a confined feeding operation or some industrial butters that are you know these animals are in ridiculous conditions. There, there's a larger there's more than one reason to eat a, a pastured butter. Well, I, I agree with you, but but I haven't been able to detect any any improvement based on the expensive butter versus the cheap butter. Um, so okay. I don't I don't make a big deal of trying to get expensive butter, but um, uh, I, I think I tend to think butter has two things that are important. One is um, saturated fats. I'm not sure which ones, but uh, because pork fat was also Before I discovered butter, I discovered pork fat, and I discovered that pork fat helped me sleep better. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure butter has the same effect, but um, but butter was better than pork fat for my performance on arithmetic tests. I I study how fast I I study how fast I do arithmetic Mm -hmm. um, every day, and when I when I started eating butter, my score on those on those arithmetic tests improved. I got faster. So apparently, butter has something that pork fat does not. I'm not quite sure what, but um, something. Okay. So that's um, that's change number three. Um, change number four. Well, I'm still working on. Oh, change number four is vitamin D three in the morning, in the early morning. Okay, D3. Uh, I take vitamin D three around nine a.m., and um, I think I think it's a very important to take vitamin D three in the morning to get the optimal benefits from it. I think it can really help your sleep and your um, energy if you take vitamin D three first thing in the morning. How are you taking that? With anything else? No. Is it important to you? No. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't. I it, it works with, when you take it by itself. Maybe it works better when you take it with something else. But I haven't gotten that far. Okay. But the AM is important. It's very important. It, it has very different effects depending on when you take it. And what have you noticed? Like what kind of effects? Uh, it's not so much me as other people. One, the the reason I got this idea was a a, a woman named um, Tara Grant um, discovered. Oh, yeah, that she's it, the primal gal. Yeah, right. She she reported one day. Be, uh, we talked at um, anyway. I, I talked to her about how to get better sleep, and I told her to um, get exposed to sunlight early in the morning. Okay. And then one evening, after I told her that, she was taking her vitamin D three at at seven p.m. and um, it, it occurred to her that maybe it was like. Taking vitamin D three at, at at seven p.m. was like getting exposed to the sun at seven p.m., hmm. and no wonder she was sleeping badly because obviously that was a bad idea to get sunlight at seven p.m. Uh-huh. So that led her to switch to taking her vitamin D three first thing in the morning, like seven a.m. And as soon as she did that, her sleep got much better and has stayed better ever since. Oh wow! Very interesting. What kind of quantities of D three are we talking here? 
Um, I started with 2,000 international units, and I found that had no effect. And then I went to 4,000 and 6,000 and 8,000, and they all had about the same effect. So um, I think you need to take at least 4,000. Okay. You know, a lot of people report good results with 5,000. So Mm -hmm. maybe 5,000 may well be enough to get the the benefits. Yeah. It's got to be D3. Don't try the other D vitamins. Yeah. Okay. And again, these the D, as far as you're aware, safe. Do you know of a threshold where that would become detrimental? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure five thousand IU of vitamin D three is safe. Okay. It's just very important to take it first thing in the morning. Okay. It makes all that makes all the difference. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to try it. I actually, I I had been, um, but I didn't. I didn't take it until I got sick. But it didn't matter. I don't think because it was a bacterial infection. So was, here's the funny thing. It was about a week ago or so. You and I were talking on email about doing this conversation. And I read your piece on tox, tonsillectomies. And the very next day, I ended up in the emergency room. <laughs> Actually, I didn't end up in the emergency room for two days. But the next morning, I woke up with the worst sore throat I've ever had in my life. And then two days later, I was actually in the emergency room, unable to speak, and with all the strength I could muster to swallow, it would drop me to my knees, the pain. And I just... Yeah. Strangest yeah, my, thing in the world, but... So what do you think caused your sore throat? Um, it was definitely not a virus, because I did not get a single cold symptom. So I would associate viruses with colds. Um, you know, you, my nose didn't get congested. I had no cough. I had no nothing except an, a localized infection in my, well, my pharynx, the back of my throat. My tonsils didn't even swell. But the whole throat swelled. So our my best guess and the doctors was that it was a bacterial infection. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with it. I'm not, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I have a little bit of a different take on it, which is that um, ordinarily your immune system should be able to fight off infections without any, any terrible consequences. Mm-hmm. And um, so this, this incident suggests that there may be room for improvement in how well your immune system is working. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because you're eating all these fermented foods. And um, I drink more I'm sure- kombucha than... GT Dave. He might be the only person that drinks more than me, actually. <laughs> well, see, here's what I think. I think your sleep can probably be improved. I don't sleep. I sleep. I, I'm the last. I'm one of the worst sleepers in the face of the earth. Okay, well, count, anyway, I, I think that yeah. if you improved your sleep, your immune system would also improve. And um, the, the good sleep plus the fermented foods, I think, are the are the the two things you can anyone can easily do to improve their um, immune system and i think your prob- i think it's your bad sleep that is 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 making you more vulnerable to infection mm-hmm. um, and i think you the vitamin d3 is one way to improve your sleep the vitamin d3 in the morning it's not the only way but it's yeah, an easy sure. way um, and I, the reason i i'm so sure of this is that when i, I was studying my sleep um, um I started, you know, as I said, I studied my sleep for a long time, and the first thing I figured out was to not eat breakfast. But I figured out a bunch of other things too, and so eventually I was sleeping really well. 
And when I started sleeping really well, at exactly that moment in my life, I stopped getting colds. Um, as long as I was sleeping well, I would never get a cold. I would get mm-hmm. a little tired for a day, but I would never come down with a cold the way other people did. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, 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 th- I think it's, I think that if you have really good sleep, you're going to get a lot less sick. Great info. If, if you're, if your sleep gets much better, you're going to get a lot mm-hmm. less sick. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, and, and, and vice versa. I think that if you're getting sick a lot, yeah. It, it suggests that there's room for improvement in how well your immune system is working. And sure. It probably means there's room for improvement in your sleep. Yeah, I've no, I don't get sick, and I mean, I, I had one of the I had tonsillitis, but I was 13 years old. I'm 40 now. Now I hadn't had a sore. I don't remember having a sore throat like that since then. But um, wow, cool stuff. You know, on the butter, have you heard of my friend Dave Asprey and his bulletproof coffee? I have, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying butter, right? Or he's, he recommends he's, butter? Yes, something? butter. In a minimum of, well, I'm not sure. They, I'd have to look up the recipe. But I think it's about, you're in that three tablespoons range, so 52 grams, 40, 42 grams, plus, you know, the, uh, as much as you need. I do 60 grams of butter in 25 grams of coffee. Yeah, I do sixty grams. Yeah, and that I've I've no not no single thing has affected my health like that butter. Uh, mental clarity, skin quality, um, sharpness, attitude, hunger. You know, your hunger's way d- decreased dramatically. Is I just have that for breakfast, and I use it as a meal replacement, basically. Do you know where Dave got the idea? No, I don't. I, he's been on my show, and I don't think we talked about that. I, I don't either. I'm curious where he got the idea. Yeah, I'm sure we could find out. Uh, he may actually tell the story on there, how, how he discovered it. I know um, being in um, maybe Nepal or somewhere um, and studying some Highlander, you know, some people gave him some insights into how to have a great morning. So maybe something in there. There's an, he has an article. I, I should go back and review it. It's been a long time since I looked at that specifically. Do you have any um, ex- much experience or interest in coffee at all? Um, well, when I started doing the Shangri-La diet, um, I discovered that I like tea. <laughs> I had never liked tea before, but all of a sudden, um, I have a kind of a I, I have a kind of flavor deficit in my life because I get a lot of calories with no flavor at all. All of a sudden, I need uh, a bunch of flavored drinks during the day to make me feel okay. So, I don't drink coffee, but I drink a lot of tea. Tea, okay. Yeah, people that are into teas love tea. Yeah, I love experimenting with tea too. I love to make. Um, the same tea two different ways and, and decide which way is better. Hmm. So I'm a, I become a tea connoisseur. <laughs> wow. well, you're because li- living there, you're, you have greater access to the whole world of teas than... You mean living in China? No, <laughs> in the Bay living, Area. Oh, uh, living in the Bay Area? Oh, I don't know. I think anybody can order tea from the internet. That's well, what I do. That's true, but you can go to the tea shops and actually have a community. Uh, 
I don't know. I don't think they. I don't think they do it right in the tea shops. I I prefer to do it in my laboratory at home. Oh really? Well, have yeah. You every every time I every time I get tea at, at a at a place at a suit at a restaurant or tea shop, it's never made very well. Oh wow! You need to check out uh, my friends at um. Um. What the heck? I forgot their name. In Berkeley? No, I don't know if they're in Berkeley. Um. Ah, well, I'll come back to it. It might pop back in my head. Oh, well, let me know. I'd be happy to go visit them. Okay. Yeah, they do uh, a real, really nice tea shops, and I can't remember their name right now, but that's all right. I need to just pull it up on the internet, and I'll, 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 I'll send you the notes. Well, I, anyway, I, I've, I've tested all sorts of ways of making tea, and I, I, I usually find that the instructions are not the optimal. Okay. Usually by a lot. Usually there's lots. You can improve a great deal. Well, maybe you can teach them something. <laughs> you know who I thought of it? It's Samovar. S- oh, S-A-M-O-V-A-R. in San Francisco? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've been there. That's a nice place. Yeah, yeah they have a few locations, I think. So. Oh. All right. That's cool. We did the butter whenever... The- oh, you know what? I wanted you to explain something. How you discovered the, this nose-clipping idea it was kind of an accident, right? The nose clipping thing was um, I got a, somebody sent me that was someone else's idea. He sent it to me by email. Okay, I meant the whole idea of wasn't it the idea you went to Paris or or France? Paris, yes. And your diet something changed that kind of kicked off this discovery, right? Um, yeah, I was in Paris and I lost my appetite and I wondered why. Why did I have so little appetite? And um, because I really like French food. And I realized that my theory, my weight control theory, provided me with an answer, which was that um, I was drinking soft drinks that were um, that were flavored with sugar, that were sweetened with sugar. And because it was France, they had, they had flavors that were new to me. So mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was in Paris, and I was tr- you know, trying to take advantage of that by drinking soft drinks that were new to me. And I was drinking about two soft drinks a day because um, it was hot. Did they taste that radically different? Were they nothing like a Coca-Cola? Or was it a whole different thing? Yeah, they were radically different. And um, they were just sort of random flavors, citrus flavors. And um, um, so that was enough, yeah. So that was that, that, that led me first to drinking sugar water. But then I... With no flavor, because um, anyway, that led me to the idea that maybe unfamiliar foods can really push your set point down a lot. Okay. And um, and then I and I thought, well, if I just have the sugar and no no um, no no flavoring, just sugar water without any flavor, mm-hmm. that that might that that then then it will never become familiar because maybe the sweetness doesn't count or something. I expected the I expected the novel soft drinks to have a, a, a I expected the I expected the sugar water to have a weak effect, but it turned out to have a really strong effect. And um, eventually, I figured out it was the absence of smell that caused it to have a, a, the strong effect. Sugar water has no smell, and um, eventually, I figured out that any food that has no smell will will have the same effect. So yeah, it was that experience in Paris that that mm-hmm. led me to um, the Shangri-La diet. Wow, that's crazy. So the idea that the unfamiliar smells and the sugary drinks 
would also equate to no smell at all, right? The sugar water. So yeah, exactly. Using yeah. just white sugar in uh, in the be- in the beginning, I was using fructose. Okay. But um, I also use regular sugar, which is sucrose, and that also worked. And then I switched to um, extra light olive oil, which has no smell. And then eventually I switched to nose clipping. <laughs> wow. i got to try this with my kombucha and see what happens. Flavorless kombucha. Oh, are you, you want to lose weight? Is that what you're saying? As an experiment. I'm right where I want to be, but I can go lower. Well, I would try it with the butter. Just just have the butter with your nose clipped. Oh, do the fat. Yeah. Clip with the butter. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But what happens when you after you unclip? Th- those molecules are still there. You know, I, I, you can taste things long after. Do you have to rinse your mouth or something? Or uh, sometimes I do. Yeah. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I can imagine with a strong flavor that that flavor is going to linger there for quite a bit. Yeah, I'm that's true. Smell. If you really if you really want to be serious, you would rinse your mouth out. Mm-hmm. Because that's the idea, right? It's those molecules that go up into the, you know, up into the, the your nasal passage, and or that's how smells are created. Is that flow of the molecules through that through there, right? Well, your the in your mouth, there's some openings into your nose. So the chemical the chemicals go from your mouth to your nose mm-hmm. to your olfactory glands. Mm-hmm. Through the through the roof through your roof your really? through the, the roof, roof of your, your mouth. I mean, I know yeah, cats yeah. do that. I didn't know a human did that. No, that's how, that's why we. Um, that's why if you hold your nose shut, your food all of a sudden tastes a lot different. Right. I wonder if yawning has anything to do with smell. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know why we're yawning. Scent. Hmm. Just popped in my head. The reason I, I don't know why I even thought of the yawn, but interesting. Well, there is another idea I've had recently, which is that maybe you've noticed that everybody touches around their mouth pretty frequently. Ah, oh, I'm the worst. Well, I think I think there's a purpose to that. I think it's to um, it's a kind of a it's part of a vaccination process, which we whereby we huh. we touch other people and uh-huh. we get germs from other people. Uh-huh. And then we touch our mouth, and then we lick our lips, or we eat food, and the, the germs go from our mouth into our, go from outside of our mouth into the inside of our mouth, and on the inside of our mouth they go to our tonsils, mm-hmm. and the tonsils are part of the immune system. So, we get we by by touching our mouth we give our tonsils a very tiny dose of, of new germs, and um, vaccination, huh? Yeah, so it's a way of getting exposed to very tiny amounts of all the germs that are around us. I wonder why it is that. It's the natural uh, imagery of um, when you're nervous or fearful that your hand goes to your mouth. Is that something we learned, or is that actually? I don't know, but I think a... people I think people's hands goes to their mouth even when they're not nervous. Mm-hmm. You know, you could look around at any public place, and you know, if there's 50 people, several of them will be touching their their mouth mm-hmm. near their mouth. Well, I'm a nail biter, so I'm a different whole category altogether. Yeah, maybe nail biting is the same thing. Yeah. Who knows? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Touching the face. So, what did you ever do with that acne? Did it go away? Yeah, it went away. Um, I think I figured out a few other things about acne, and if I, I had to do it all over again, I would um, 
probably try dietary things. But I think I figured out that uh, I figured out a couple of things. First of all, benzoyl peroxide really worked. Mm-hmm. Second of all, um, Pepsi was really bad. Pepsi caused my face to break out, so I stopped eating Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Third of all, I think B vitamins helped. I don't really know why. Okay. Um, so I figured out a variety of things, and then my acne just got better and went away. But um, I'm I'm writing a story for Boing Boing about how a woman discovered that um, she moved to Ireland and she got um, terrible acne. And through a long process of trial and error, she figured out that it was caused by dairy products. Mm-hmm. And when she stopped eating dairy, um, her acne got her acne went away. So, you know, she, she'd eaten dairy products. She Before that, she lived in Seattle, and she'd eaten dairy products in Seattle. It, it was something about the Irish dairy products that was, uh-huh. was a problem. I wonder what that it might, it might also interact with the vitamin D. Somebody said that, well, she got less vitamin D in Ireland because it was more overcast than Seattle. Uh-huh. So it might be a little complicated, but whatever it was. Jer- it's definitely going to get complicated because anytime you're talking dairy, things seem to always get complicated. Casein, the type of casein, the type of animal, you know, this is uh, they have the older breeds and the new ones. and Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a fun investigation. Well, I wouldn't call it fun. It, it was it was a very serious problem. <laughs> it was a very serious problem for her. It was nothing. It was well, it was not. I mean, it was fun, it was very important. Fun keeps you getting through it. The, to no, 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 no. You're wrong. You're really wrong. It, it was it was it was a it was an extremely serious problem she had with the, with the acne, and it was incredibly depressing. And um, it was incredibly. It, it caused her enormous enormous suffering. And um, she went to the doctor, and the doctor's only solution was to give her Accutane, mm-hmm. and and she knew that Accutane was a very bad drug and very very dangerous and very could very easily cause all sorts of long term damage, and um, so it, it, it's very it's it's a great thing what she did that she showed that she did not have to take Accutane to get rid of her acne. It, it wasn't fun. It wasn't no, fun. You're you're really her, missing the. Please what? understand. I didn't mean from her perspective. Oh, what fun that must have been. I meant. As someone who likes to discover and tinker, if I saw that story, I would be intrigued and excited to read and follow along and see, you know, if I was there helping her, it would be a sense of fun, an accomplishment. Like Dr. House, you know, that TV show, like that, you know, coming up with the the, the answer to the problem. I understand from her perspective, you know, that's horrible. I meant as a sense of discovery as an outsider. To, to investigate, you know, I, I wouldn't, that, that's all I meant. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, okay. It, it, it was easy. It, 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 uh, some, some of the self-experimentation I do is fun. Um, mm-hmm. um, like trying to make my brain work better. I mean, I don't have some terrible memory problem now and, you know, my brain seems to work well, you know, pretty well. But, but it is fun to try different things to to see what makes it work better. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- this was this was a different case where um, uh, she she um, she had a really serious problem that that she was able, unable to find help for, and yeah. and it's a, it's a great thing that she was able to finally do something about it. Yeah, that's good. 
have a tons of things I, I'd like to do some experiment with. Right now I'm stuck with this antibiotic. So that'll be my self-experiment for the next two weeks. And What is that? Well, I'm on antibiotics now for the sore throat. So oh. I'm trying to balance the amount of probiotics I take when I take them with the antibiotics. Because, you know, whatever I read seems to contradict a bit. But so it, that's my current self-experiment is to see how I come out of this in two weeks. <laughs> so we'll see. Well, you should be in good shape because you eat all those fermented foods. Those yeah, will help. I hope so. That's the idea. This has been fun, Seth. Thanks. Oh, thank you. I, I, um, I think people are really going to kick out of this. And I hope they'll check out your book, The Shangri-La Diet. You have an awesome blog. Uh, it's, there's a lot going on there. You know, I didn't even know you knew or cared anything about fermented foods until the other day. I just happened, I was looking at the categories on the right-hand side of your blog. And I saw there was over 188 tags, tagged fermented foods. So that caught my eye. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting there. coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a ton there. Uh, I love it. And I look forward to your work on Boing Boing. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to... Uh... Who brought, who brought you in there? Who who contacted you? I contacted them. Oh, I want I I um I I I wanted to write a series of columns called Make Yourself Healthy. And the, the idea was was that they would be for Make magazine, which okay. I like. Yeah. And then I so I wrote to the guy in charge of Make magazine, which is um Mark. Uh, Mark, Mark. Yeah. And um he suggested that they, they were not they were not great for Make, but they would be good for Boing Boing. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, he was on my show just a couple episodes ago. Yeah, that's what yeah. that's I'm a that huge, made me, I'm a huge that, Frauenfelder, Frauenfelder fan. So yeah, yeah, that that made me want to do your show. <laughs> oh, great, <laughs> good. <laughs> Funny how these things work. Oh well, thanks, Seth. I'll have um, all your show, all the links and everything in the show notes. Is there anything else that you're working on, or we need to know about, read about? Well, my current my current interest at this very second is the vitamin D three in the morning. So okay. Um, so uh, if you have experience with that, oh yeah. If any of your listeners have experience with vitamin D three in the morning, I'd like to hear about it. And if any of your listeners have found a way to use science to help themselves, you know, like it can be self experimentation, it can be just reading the medical literature. Um, I hope that they will contact me with their stories because I want to collect stories of how people have used science to help themselves because I'm trying to figure out how people do it. So the more examples I can collect, the better. Oh, wow. That's great. I sure I have a few anecdotes I could throw your way. So, and I'm sure others do, especially with the whole paleo explosion and all the bloggers and everyone's engaged and online and trying new things and therapies and things there that boy you're gonna get you're gonna get overwhelmed i bet with response <laughs> well i i think i think we're living in a time where people can finally use science to help themselves because i think science has become advanced enough so that um it has practical applications yeah unfortunately the 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 me- the doctors aren't aren't in, aren't very interested in those practical applications but that doesn't mean the rest of us can't be so yeah so I, I'm hoping to um, bring that to light. Oh, great. Bring, the, lo- bring those applications to light. Excellent. Thanks for your work, Seth. And you, you can trust you have a fan in me. I'll, I'll be reading along. 
Uh, thank you, Brian. All right. Good night, Seth. Okay, good night. Thanks for listening to episode 14. As a reminder, Audible is offering a free audiobook download to listeners of this show with a free 14-day trial uh, to give you the opportunity to check out the service. Um, if you don't know of a book, go check out Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. That's one of the most fantastic books I've ever listened to or read. So what you do is you just um, go to audibletrial.com forward slash docfermento. Again, audibletrial.com forward slash docfermento for your free audiobook. Thanks for your support.